Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Stephen Burt, Brian Evanson, Karen Long, Eric Lorber, and Rusty Morrison. You will now hear Eric Lorber provide introductions. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. 9 a.m., always a little tricky. I know some of us up here are a little tired as well, but very happy to be with you and talking about our subject today, the ethics of book reviewing. I'm Eric Lorber. I'm the editor of Rain Taxi Review of Books. We're turning 20 this year, which has kind of snuck up on us. I proposed this panel because I noticed, I mean, over the years, I've been on lots of book reviewing panels. They've all been great, actually. And it's been wonderful to see the growing interest in this particular segment of the field. Uh, but so many of them focus on more practical elements, which, again, is great. But I found myself yearning for some more uh, abstruse material, uh, some philosophy. And because uh, we deal with ethical matters quite frequently, we assess our ethical guidelines yearly. As a board, I should say, we're a nonprofit book review, so that might be a factor in that. I thought it would be a really interesting prospect and uh, gathered some comrades, all of whom I admire and all of whom have different relationships to the book review field. Some of them have written for Rain Taxi uh, and many other publications. Uh, and, and also, between them, they represent fields such as teaching, publishing, working at large newspapers, foundations, and reading series, all sorts of other activities, which I think is important because reviewing, in my mind, is not a monoculture, and that's one of its strengths. At any rate, I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves and maybe, in light of what I just said, talk about your various subject positions in addition to reviewing. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for coming out here. I'm Stephen Burt also Stephanie, same person, and I do a lot of things related to book reviewing. I review a lot of poetry, some graphic novels and comics and fiction and academic and non-academic lit crit books. I also teach. I also write poetry books. I teach at Harvard. I taught at McAllister College in Minnesota before that, and I think that may be all you need to know. I'm proud to be a rain taxi writer. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for coming out. I am happy and flattered to be with you today, and I'm looking forward especially to when you start to speak. So we'll try to get there quickly. I was book editor for eight years of The Plain Dealer, the newspaper in Cleveland, Ohio. I write now for a variety of outlets. I also manage the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards, which are the only juried prize in our country for books that look at racism and think about diversity. Yes, thank you, and thank you for being with us, Karen. I should say that uh, in your programs, it might say that Carolyn Kellogg was scheduled to be here. She couldn't make it, and Karen graciously agreed to pinch hit at the last minute. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rusty Morrison. It's uh, great to see everyone here at 9 a.m., which feels like 4 a.m. somehow, you know. It's panel time. I'm delighted to be a writer for Rain Taxi, Uh, Rain Taxi is one of the most amazing review organs that we have. I've been a publisher since 2001, uh, co-publishing Omnidon with my husband, Ken Keegan, and uh, 
I also am a poet, and I have a number of books that other people have published of mine. And I also write critical essays and think about writing and poetry and ideas from not just the reviewer position, but also from the position of the thoughtful engager with the ideas. I'm Brian Evanson. I'm currently a professor at Brown University, just accepted the job at CalArts, so I'm leaving Brown. I have reviewed a number of different places. I used to, when I was young, I used to review as much as I could so that I could just get books. I couldn't afford books, and that was a great way to get books. Now I don't do quite as many, but review at Rain Taxi, uh, various other places, uh, and, and have the luxury at this point of just choosing books I'd really like to see reviewed. Great. I think you're getting a hint of some of the meat that we hope to dig into today. One of our key tenets, actually, is that we try to think of reviewing as not a top-down profession. So in that spirit, I always try to engage reviewers in, in decision-making processes and to try to learn from them, to hear from them what their concerns are. So I asked each of the people here today to just give a, a brief talk about their vantage of the topic, and I'm certainly looking forward to um, hearing it. Maybe we can start with you, Steve. Am I, am I first? Yeah. <laughs> am I first? Okay. I want to help us think about conflicts in general, about conflict of interest in book reviewing and why they never go away. And I want to do a diagram. Imagine a universe in which there are five people, and they all write books, and they're the only people who can write books on this topic because it's quite an obscure topic. Let's say Akkadian inscriptions. Akkadian with a K. Uh, Ancient Sumeria, that stuff. And they're the only people qualified to review each other's books. They're the only people who understand what's going on. And it doesn't matter that they all go to the same cocktail parties because no one else can do this. In that situation, no one really needs to worry about conflicts of interest. All they need to worry about is not lying in print, just saying things they believe, and the only people who can catch them are the other four. So that's a situation where conflict of interest aren't something that should keep anyone up at night because there's no way to get outside the circle. Now imagine another universe in which there are millions and millions of people, like the stars in the night sky, all of whom are wonderful writers and are perfectly qualified to review any book on a given topic. In that situation, conflict of interest also do not arise because if you're the editor, let's say you're Karen, I'm not going to sketch Karen, imagine Karen assigning books or Eric assigning books, you have no problem finding someone to review a book who's a beautiful writer, meets deadlines, is perfectly qualified, will understand exactly what's going on, and will have no connection to the author or the publisher or the career shape that involves future interactions with that author or that publisher. In that universe, conflict of interest also do not arise. The problem is that in almost every sector, maybe every sector of the literary world, we live in between those two worlds. And if you are the assigning editor, you have to decide how close you want the reviewer to be able to be to the author, the topic, the publisher, and what rules you have to have. And if we keep that in mind, we can see why almost every journal that I've written for and almost every assigning editor that I've worked with has had slightly different rules. There are many, many kinds of rules you can have, and I want to go into this topic by remembering that this is a problem that has no one solution. Maybe that's all for now. Wonderful. I'd just like to take you for coffee and call it a day. Um, 
I want to start with a story, since we all like those. I was outside the doors yesterday, and I ran into a friend, a novelist, and a critic. And she and I discovered in the first couple minutes we had both just reviewed Toni Morrison's new novel, God Help the Child, for Eastern Publications. So immediately we did the animal thing of scanning each other's faces and exhaled that we had come out on the same note, Minor Morrison. And then she said, she doubled down, I wish people would learn to go out on top. And I said, did you say that? (laughs) And her startle reflex, you could see from the last seat in the auditorium. And the question then is, did I say that? Well, I don't think that. I think Minor Morrison is better than 90% of major everybody else, almost everybody else. So what I did say, though, was that passages in the book had a romance novel-worthy quality, and I quote it to back it up. And I use this example not to excoriate my friend. I'd use it if she were here. But to say ethics are fascinating, and they are always in play. Her decisions not to tell exactly what she thought, I have a problem with that as an assigning editor. My ideal reviewer pretty much says what they would confide in a friend or at the dinner table. And what you can argue with that, but the, the, the good part of that is there is an argument, and it should be had between the editor and the critic. And she did, in fact, get feedback from her editor who said, wow, you didn't love this. So she didn't come out and say it, but she communicated it. And that might be all the editor wants, because the editor also may not want to piss off the godhead. So um, I come to you out of the Roman Catholic herd, so my mind works that way. And this is, to me, very minor what my friend was practicing. I wouldn't even say it rises to the level of venial sin. What is a venial sin in my world is to... I've had critics write specifically to get their names planted on the back of that paperback. You know, they want to be quoted. They want their names circulated. Steve just made a noise that indicates he might elevate that to a mortal sin. (laughs) But for me, you know, because I I like the gravitas of uh, mortal, those sins I would boil down to blood, marriage, sex, and money. And the idea is, you better talk to me and you better talk to yourself about any of those connective tissues between you and the author, their agent, their editor, and their publishing house. So, if a brother-in-law figures in there, if you've been sleeping or have slept with people in that universe, if you work for or have had them work for you, the money piece, that is up in the disqualifying realm and definitely the revealing realm. And I think I'll wrap up my intro by saying one of the great ideas Eric had was how do we talk about these things in the shifting landscapes of where we read our criticism. And I think that 
the, the goals of the good of transparency and owning our connections, which aren't bad, but should be explicit, start by not doing it alone. There's that um, bit in Matthew about not seeing the mote in your own eye, concentrating on the mote in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own. And I, I keep coming back to that image when it comes to the way we call each other on our conflicts. And what I think about when I think about reading in the Wild Web is who's editing, who's having that conversation. And there's a, many reasons we all find ourselves reading The New Yorker. But one of those reasons, I argue, is the fact-checking. When Lawrence Wright had his first Scientology article, it took six months of fact-checking. And I want to read things that have more than one brilliant mind engaged and also have some cops involved. But then I grew up Catholic. Sure. I mean, I do think that unless you're actually thinking about it closely and carefully, that you can convince yourself uh, that you're engaged in ethical reviewing practices, um, even when you're not, at least not completely. I do think it's, you know, the best editors are really good at, at calling you on things and talking about conflicts and, and making it aware. I do have friends who who feel like if the editor doesn't ask them if they have a conflict, it's okay for them to go ahead and write the review that they probably shouldn't write. But I think I'm going to talk about two different things, I guess, just to begin with. And the first involves something that, every, that the others have talked about a little bit, and that's the question of, of the closeness of the person you're reviewing and whether or not you should review friends. I think it's easy to justify this, even when it probably shouldn't be justified. Uh, in the literary world, if you're even moderately aware, you're probably only a step or two away from any other writers. Uh, instead of six degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's more like two degrees from George Saunders. <laughs> the hard thing, I think, is that in the literary world, you're often friends with people because you admire their work. And in addition, um, you want to review people you admire because attention to certain kinds of books helps make a space for a certain sort of literature uh, within the literary landscape. I think the most difficult question, if you're both a reviewer and a writer, is to what degree your job is to review books in an objective fashion and to what degree your task is to shape literary culture using whatever materials you have on hand. Uh, I personally don't think you should review your friends that people you, you, you see regularly or email with regularly or have slept with or whatever, um, even if they're good writers, should just be off limits. But where it gets tricky, I think, uh, is when you start talking about acquaintances. Um, you know, people you've met a couple of times at a conference, people you know on Facebook, you know, how close you are to what those people and at what point you can or can't be objective is a really complicated question. You know, are, are former students okay if, they're, if they've been out long enough? Um, you know, where do you draw the line? I don't think there's a correct place to draw the line, but again, if you don't think about it um, in regard to particular cases of, of things you're reviewing or if you kind of repress it, the line will draw itself for you in a way that's blurred and potentially problematic. And so and I think what happens is that you think you're doing one thing when in fact you're doing another as a result of that. The second thing I want to talk about briefly is just involves reviewing in a way that doesn't dismiss in advance people whose subject positions are different from your own. And this to me is a big one and one that we need to keep referring to and keep, be remind, keep being reminded of. 
I think if we don't make an effort to read widely and to move outside of our normal patterns of reading, we slip very quickly into ruts. Uh, and I do think that organizations like VITA do a tremendous service in this regard, for instance, by making transparent the ratios of male to female publications of various kinds and different venues. I think it's important to take that kind of inventory of your own work as a reviewer periodically. And I do understand that this can be complicated and that reviews are assigned. Um, they're often assigned to you because of people's sense of your expertise. There's a reason, I think, that organizations like VITA tend to focus on publications rather than targeting individual reviewers. But editors do take suggestions as well, and I think we need to be aware of when uh, our reviewing or our individual reading is not only limiting us but reinforcing a false perception of the monochromatic nature of the literary world or encouraging a literary hierarchy that submits to outmoded notions of gender. And, you know, at different moments I think I've, I've been good or bad about this, and, and this is the thing, is I think you, you, you have to constantly have this conversation with yourself. You don't, you know, I, I think the fact that Rain Taxi has a yearly review of their practices and, and the ethics of their practices is, is, is an incredible thing, and it's something I think that reviewers themselves should do. You know, I've had years where if you'd asked me if I'd reviewed, you know, roughly equal numbers of male and female writers, I would have said yes, and then go back and look at it and realize, no, I actually reviewed a lot more male writers. And, you know, I can't and shouldn't really blame this on what the magazine editors wanted. You know, it's just something that once you get fixated on certain kinds of things, there's years where I've been really interested in reviewing international literature and, and, and stop thinking about other sorts of things. When I was a very young writer back in my early 20s, I was lucky to stumble across a Zimbabwean writer named Dambutso Marachera. He's a remarkable writer, really fierce in a number of ways. And he said something in a short article uh, that I've thought about a lot since, which is that while writers do exist in nations and ethnicities and genders and other groups of various kinds, they also and even primarily exist altogether as a kind of country of writers. I think if you believe that, then reading or reviewing only white male writers is a little bit like going to a new city and only eating at Denny's um, because you're comfortable there. <clears throat> if we stay in our ruts as readers and reviewers, we stay in our ruts you know, as, as writers as well, and I think we end up missing a lot of great work that we'd otherwise come across. And as reviewers, whether we have a project or not, we need to take serious and real risks that take us outside of our kind of limited sphere. So I, too, will start with a little story, and then I'll explain why it's relevant to reviewing, uh, in case it's a little obscure. Um, so I'm in a reading group with a few very smart writers and critics, and we study poems for pleasure and insight, and it's led by a very smart scholar, poet. I won't mention her name because she might be embarrassed by the story I'm about to tell, although I hold her in even higher esteem because of what happened in the group. She'd brought in a poem for discussion, less than a page, and during the two hours of our very enthusiastic discussion of the piece, um, our interpretation of the form's impact on subject matter, matter and how it yielded content in the poem, everyone experienced and expressed to the group at least once, if not more often, that we each were having our own particular certainties about a particular aspect of the poem entirely disrupted because of what someone else said about the work. That doesn't mean that any of us saw our initiating position as made wrong by the other people in conversation, but that we rather found that the poem continued to mean more to us in a more complex way than we had seen alone. 
In an email conversation the next day with the leader, she said to me, I respect the poem even more now after last night, but I still don't fully understand it. And I love her for saying that to me. Um, she's the kind of critic that I wouldn't expect to hear that from, but she too, often in the conversation in the, in the group said, I hadn't seen that, I hadn't seen that, um, with that quick shake of the head. And it was an amazing two hours for me. I know what she meant. She can't say that she understands it entirely, but that's not because the poem was a difficult poem. I want to underline that. It wasn't something that you would read and say, initially, I don't understand the syntax or I don't follow the meaning. The meaning was clear on the surface level, but more and more came forward in the interplay of sound and sense and the interplay of form and function as we talked about it and as we started to ask ourselves what understanding meant to us, and that we could enlarge that frame for ourselves in conversation with each other. I was reminded that I come to poetry and to other forms of literature to have exactly that experience, to find more than I initially expect, to experience something that exceeds my grasp, and to become more limber in my intellectual and emotional reach when I read the work. There are many studies of brain activity that account how when we read literature that gives us insight, they register a new pattern of neural activity. New pathways are actually created. And once a restructuring occurs, it never disappears. We can lose track of it by not operating within it, but it's always there for us. And what I believe about literature is that it teaches us to step, certain kinds of literature, literature that lead us to insight, will actually teach us how to create more of those neural connections or synapses. And that perhaps that might even help us in our day-to-day -day lives when we're up against an impossible or seemingly insoluble problem. That if we push a little harder in that way that we've learned without even being able to logically understand it, that change can happen. And that's what I felt in community or in conversation with those other, other writers. So what does this have to do with book reviewing? Since my primary work is a publisher of poet, poetry and not a reviewer, I'm very lucky in that I have the chance to choose what I review. And I see choice as the first ethical issue, which is really what we've been talking about here. I trust that the others on this panel, which I've heard, I've already talked about other aspects of choice, but I want to talk about a choice that may seem very obvious, which is the choice regarding whether I completely understand the work and if I'm willing to review work that is continuing to defy my understanding and yet I want to, I want to talk about that nonetheless with an audience. It's also, to be absolutely honest with you, why I choose books for Omnidon if on the level of line or on the level of actually arc of the book, there's more there than I first, real, I first believe. And I feel it, I sense it, there's an experience of insight that by reading and reading the book, I continue to have. And that's the work I want to review, and that's actually the work that we want to publish. By this, I do not mean incomprehensible work, but I do mean that I experience the work as creating a visceral thrill for me, and in that sense, charged with insight. I know that's not a logical criteria. I can't map it. I wish I could do that with, with uh, markers on the board, but that is not in my ability level. But studies have shown that 
the brain does register emotional responses before we figure out logically what something means to us. Henri Bergson talks about how when we hear a joke, we laugh first, a complicated joke. And then later, we realize we have to figure out what was funny about it to us. Um, so I think of that laugh, or that I call it tingle, that I look for when I read a piece of literature, whether it's fiction or prose. Poetry is all that I review for the most part. I have reviewed a little bit of philosophy, but primarily it's that sharp moment of surprise that I look for and that stays with me, and those are the pieces of work that I want to review and that I want to publish. I know that there's always something ineffable in that physical experience, something outside lo logic. And as I have recounted in my experience in that reading group, I trust that every reader may see the work from a different vantage and arrive at it differently. But I think that what's most important to me is I'm looking for work that demonstrates to me that there is always more to me than I expect. Rebecca Solnit, in a discussion of Virginia Woolf's critical voice, suggests that Woolf celebrates what she examines by insisting on its multiplicity in her writing, insisting on its irreducibility and its mystery. Its mystery is, to her, the capacity of something that keeps becoming. I'm not suggesting that the wily critic should find and create meaning in a work and that the wily critic should be able to do that. Rather that I think that in the work there is a sense of the other that I'm continually seeking. Um, this means for me that I'm willing to choose to re review works that defy my first level of understanding. And that's frightening. Rosalind DePros in her text Corporeal Generosity tells us that in assuming that the other is the same, one reduces the other to the self. And to do so, and here she quotes Nietzsche, deliberately and recklessly brushes the dust off the wings of the butterfly that is this moment. She goes on to suggest that to offer generosity is to begin with the risk and the admission that one must not expect from any statement of the other that we will get it right. Last week, I was delighted to read a reviewer who mid-essay stated, this work is the hardest of all this writer's work to describe. I don't know if I can do it. I was thrilled. And then he does go on to attempt with all of his skill a description of what remains ultimately inexplicable. Giorgio Agamben in his text Nudities proposes that the articulation of a zone of non-knowledge is the condition and at the same time the touchstone of all of our knowledge. Of course, Agamben tells us that there are plenty of ways, and we know it, that not knowing can lead us to clumsiness and ugliness and foolhardiness. But such carelessness and inattention abounds. Instead, what we are looking for is to find a careful and attentive way of striving toward what we are unable to know. Agamben proposes that the art of living and I'll add, the art of reviewing is the capacity to keep ourselves in harmonious relationship to that which escapes us. Thank you all so much. Uh, I think, as I hope you can tell, I, I sort of feel like we've tried to unroll a carpet and show that there are some patterns emerging, hints of them anyway, and that they could go on for quite a, quite a while. 
The connective tissue that jumps to my mind and, and that I actually think about quite frequently is that we're talking about relationships between people, that this is not some kind of scientific enterprise, but that real people are doing the work on all ends of the equation. And I wonder, you know, first of all, if that's ever a factor, like sort of the, the reality, the material reality of these people. Everything is in a relationship with everything else. The rubric for this panel, which is sort of broader than I, I might have thought, runs from the sort of great reading list that, that Rusty was giving us from a kind of post-Nietzschean or post-Heideggerian ethics. Uh, I almost, I don't know if Levinas was in the longer version of that. Is Emmanuel Levinas in there somewhere? Yeah, a, a Levinasian ethics of openness to the other and of... What? Okay, you almost did. Okay. This is, if you don't know the French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, of openness to the otherness of the other, which should affect us as writers and as critics, and is for Levinas a specifically ethical consideration, requirement, really, although in some of Levinas it's a requirement that no actual human being can completely fulfill, all the way over to am I conflicted out of reviewing the latest volume of poetry by my cousin's college roommate or by an editor who paid me $200 to review something else 10 years ago? And those seem like they should be entirely separate kinds of questions. But one of the things that we're already seeing is that maybe they're not. And that's why the first kind of question is so hard to get your head around, and the second is so unexpectedly hard to answer, because every encounter that we have with a work of literature, and really, if you think about the impulse to make things concrete, to give examples, to give telling adjectives, to give symbols for most of the kinds of literary writing that we do, every kind of abstract relation to the world that we can imagine or feel has to be concretized to be memorable. And when you concretize something, you're putting it into a world of material stuff and people with histories, which also means people who need to make a living and need to eat and often not always have places to live uh, and need money. And the reason it's so hard to come up with, to get back to the practical side, a code of ethics for book reviewers, the reason no one will ever come up with such a thing in a way that gives practical guidance to all reviewers in all circumstances, is that every encounter with a book that you have takes place under different circumstances, both in terms of your taste and the book's aesthetics and the book's larger goals, and in terms of where you and the book and the commissioning editor and the publisher are in a world of honestly, money and other practical stuff. So everything is related to everything else. What is it? Is it James? Really, truly, relations stop nowhere? <laughs> I think, yeah. That's James, right? Relations stop nowhere. Well said. Thank you, Steve. The other thing that really came up for me in, in these talks that I wanted to delve into was the realm of the reviewer's agency, desire, what Rusty called choice, and maybe what Brian referred to as, as a sort of self-challenge. And because reviewing happens on a spectrum of assigning to a sort of passionate fervor, that's a complicated matter too. So simply because I can, we're here, I kind of want to ask uh, just some sort of very plain, blunt questions. But uh, So for example, Karen, did you want 
to review the, the Morrison? Were you, were you eager to do it? Were you personally invested before the assignment? You know? Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. You know, who doesn't want to sit at the big kid table? <laughs> yeah. And I don't think neutral is what anyone is going for. I think that's that idea of objectivity and just the facts, ma'am, is the first thing to set aside. And when I listen to the other panelists, first I want to take a course with everybody. <laughs> but second, I do think we're all aware in our own lives of, you know, log rolling, back scratching, sycophantism, brown nosing, revenge. Like, we can all pull examples. And those are the things we can't pretend because we're about these higher angels of experiencing otherness in people's writing aren't grubbing into the room. And so I like to think people are mysterious. And it's a great way to approach people because it's respectful. And one can't know what's on another's heart. So my standards boil down to the appearance of a conflict. You may be able to review your brother-in-law and write like an angel, but that appearance wrecks it for me. Right. Let me zero in a little bit on that. Why did you want to <laughs> review Toni Morrison? Respect. Um, engagement with her canon interest in why she matters more internationally than nationally. Okay. I do the work with Annisfield Wolf, so she's won our prize. And I'm drawn to generational things that one can see in her writing. So I had those higher level reasons, but the grubbier reason to return is I also want to matter in this universe and one way I do is putting my voice into it. Right. And so what I love about that answer is, like, to me, it illuminates the person behind the category of reviewer, you know. And not that that needs to be illuminated in the moment, but I think it is in the back. I mean, it's obviously in the background, and it, it, it might be a point of reflection that we'd do better to engage more often. Let me ask the opposite question since we have people on the panel who are both reviewers and in the period when they have new books of being reviewed. Uh, I should probably take this moment to issue this shameless plug that here at AWP we've just released a new chapbook in our series by Stephen Bird <laughs> called All Season Stephanie. We're very proud of that. So Steve, as an author, why do you want to be reviewed? And let me just also say... I hear the phrase, I would love it if you'd review my book. Oh, God. A staggering number of times per week. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, and I, so I'm really, for the first time, getting to ask, okay, why? <laughs> is, this, is this for me first? Okay. Sure. Um, I like attention. I think most literary writers, possibly most people, like attention. I want more people to read the things that I write, and book reviews are a way of calling attention to work. Uh, even in a sort of neutral or faintly positive description, even a well-done attack can call attention to 
the work in a way that maybe gets it in front of some more people who might like it. Uh, there's also the further pleasure of having someone get what you're trying to do. The last time I had a, a, a big, a sort of full-length book of poetry out was 2013, and there were two pieces about it and about me that really stuck in my mind. One of them was a piece in the Canadian Journal Open Letter by the poet Kirsten Cashock, who got everything right. Is she here? I don't think she's here. And I really felt like no one who had written about me felt that it was worth spending all that time and got everything right. Uh, and I was really moved and uh, sent her an email. I had never heard of her before, and now I've read some of her work. I don't know if that means I'm conflicted out of writing about her forever. For the Times Book Review, for example, it would be. For the Plain Dealer, it would be. For other venues, I might not be. And you can see why not, because if I want Jane Doe to someday write about me, then I should never write about her. And you see why, if that's a rule that all editors follow, it really puts a kibosh on a lot of criticism that we would like to have in the world. That's a digression. The other review of Belmont, my last book of poetry that came out that really made me notice, uh, was an attack. It was a long piece in the New Republic saying that I wasn't a very good poet, and as a critic I had no standards because I had no philosophical program uh, on which I evaluated things in terms of good or bad. I wasn't uh, R.P. Blackmer, for example, or Matthew Arnold. Uh, and I'm not those people. Um, and that's okay with me. And uh, this was a piece that called me a fanboy. And the boy thing I have some problems with, but the fan, yeah. Yeah. And this was a very sharp critic who may also be here who understood what I was trying to do and didn't like it. And that was really fun, to be quarreled with in a way that was oppositional, but thoughtful. And I liked getting that kind of attention, too. Thank you for your honesty. And I do want to, again, call out a couple of key things. For me, anyway, one of the things we do at Rain Taxi, actually, is work with emerging reviewers, I guess I would say, um, younger people who are trying to break into the field and we feel it's incumbent on us to give them some instruction and encouragement. And one of the things we find ourselves frequently guiding them to do is to look at what a work is trying to do, in, in Steve's phrase, rather than what it might accomplish. You know, most people, when they switch the gear, realize it's, it's a different task, and I think a more useful one for a literary conversation. Rusty, uh, as a publisher, do you take this issue of what happens when, you know, what, when the review, like what, I, I'm sure there's the mythical feeling that, review and the bad review. yeah, and do they sell more books, do they not, and how, you know, how does it, how does it interface with the book's potential as an object in the world? It's, it's crucial to us that we see the books reviewed in the world, and we consider it part of our curatorial function to get the books into as many reviewers' hands as possible whether or not those reviewers are going to be entirely positive, neutral, not read the book, use it as a doorstop. It's our job to get the book to the reviewer, and we also think it's our job to... We include a, an interview with the author that I do so that there's some conversation between the publisher and the author, which the reviewer can completely ignore or not. So does... I mean, and, and that's an ethical question. Should I do that? Should I provide some ground for the work. Um, yes, it, you it, should. It, yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I love an answer. <laughs> and See, I, feel, <laughs> <all your> <laughs> I feel it's important that the reviewer have choice. 
in this regard and maybe disagree with some of the things that the author has said, but I've seen some of that conversation come into reviews in a useful anecdotal way. But one story I want to tell, which I actually told to you over dinner a couple nights ago, is that we offer our, rev- our books by query first to a scad billion reviewers. If you basically come up to the Omnidon table and say, I'm interested in reviewing your books, we will put you on our query list and we will ask you if you'd like any of these books this season. We don't, as a rule, send books to everybody. Just send them out. But we ask first. And because we ask, we are told, we're just told in the last season, I'm interested in seeing a couple of those books, but one of them I want to see because I really don't think I'm going to like that book. And I honestly think I may write a review criticizing that work. And so we had about a two-minute conversation. First of all, we were shocked in a delighted way at the candor of this reviewer. And then we thought, there's no way in the world we wouldn't send that book because we're not going to hide our work from a reviewer who is maybe going to be critical. And if that review comes out, will that review, and I honestly think that it's an, an open question because we can't, because a book may get five or six reviews and one negative one. So how are we to judge, did that negative review help the book or did it hurt the book when you're looking at all these other factors? But in terms of being a publisher, are we open to negative reviews? We're open to the book being seen and read in as honest way as possible by the community. And if there are some criticisms and some positive things, then we feel that the readers will get a chance to take a close look at it. As a writer, can I just say one little story? Um, One of my books was finally reviewed in a, a, a longer piece in Poetry Magazine. I won't say the reviewer. And there were four or five other poets reviewed in the piece. I think it was four of us. And of the four people reviewed, I think I was the most negatively reviewed. My friend may disagree with me about how negative it was. We read it together. And that's also an interesting thing. If you're the writer and you read a review of your work, I don't know if you're anything like me, you'll see every little thing as, oh, they hated it, they hated it. But what the reviewer basically said is there's a lot of terrific lines here, but it really... Does the book actually mean anything? Probably not, (laughs) which just killed me. But then I thought, this is a reviewer who's looking for a different kind of work. As Stephen was said, we, you know, this reviewer saw very intuitively or very insightfully what I was trying to do line by line, but didn't like the way I didn't pull it together in a coherent fashion. So... You know, I'm not going to change my writing style, but it was a really interesting thing to see how someone can see you so clearly and disagree with you. So, Yeah. And actually, I'm going to tell a little anecdote that popped into my head, but I remember several years ago, and this really speaks uh, to ethics in a broader sense, I think, and to the human purpose behind the enterprise of reviewing, but I remember you and I were discussing some potential poetry books that you might review, and at the time, you had a death in the family. And we began to talk about poets whose work dealt with uh, death and loss. And it became very important for you to write about that at that moment. And that really, um, it, it, it was a, a stark lesson in this matters on a level beyond, you know, chatting about a book or talking it up. Or there is a real, there is something that happens in the process that, that is you know, essentially uh, emotional and, and humanistic. Yeah. That review that I wrote for Rain Taxi helped me grieve that death 
in a way that I could not have grieved it in any other way. It was an incredibly moving experience to write deeply about death in a book that wasn't my direct experience, but that I could take into the aesthetic realm, which is really an opportunity to take into a more spiritual or philosophical realm and take the issues of death apart and look at how a writer changes me in my thinking. And so I'm really grateful that Rain Taxi gave me that opportunity. It helped me enormously. Thank you, and I think it helped others. Um, Brian, as the fiction writer on the panel, you, you have received um, more reviews of your work. And I'm curious, first of all, because you read widely, because you read in other languages, because you translate yourself, and so you're seeing, I think, a discrepancy genre-wise. I'm curious if you have any response, you know, any sort of feeling about, you know, you talked about the diversity challenges mm -hmm. that, that we're all, that it's incumbent on us all to sort of ask those questions, but even into the more aesthetic realms, do you yeah. see things being paid attention, not enough attention? Yeah, I think there's always things that get more attention than other things. I want to very briefly go back to, to what Rusty was saying. Um, I, I do think that the publisher, the ethics of publishing, is you, you give as much material as you can to make the book succeed, mm -hmm. and then if the, if the uh, editor of the magazine wants to take that out before they send it to the writer, that's fine. So look, I suppose if you're sending it directly to the potential review writer, that's another issue, but I, I, just, I still think it's like that's, that's the most ethical thing as a, as, as a publisher to do. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing I want to say is, you know, I've, I've always heard that a good negative review in the New York Times sells more books than a, a positive review. I've never been able to quite verify that, but I, I like believing that that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's it's a complicated issue in, in fiction. It's for me, it's complicated uh, as a writer because I write work that's kind of has one foot in literature and one foot in in genre, and uh, uh, people either get that or they just don't get it. And so uh, when I get a negative review, it, 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 it often just doesn't get it. Right. It says, you know, this is not a literary book or this is not a genre book. Or, <laughs> and ultimately, I don't find that very useful for me as a writer. Uh, I don't think it's that useful for readers as well. I love negative reviews that are smart. I think it's much harder to write negative reviews that are smart than to write hatchet jobs or something that really reveals the bias of the review writer. But when you get those, they're things that really stick with you as a, as a writer. And then I also think that, you know, I, I think that you can start to see the biases of certain reviewers if you begin to follow them and expect what, you know, you see, see what they're interested in, what they expect. And, and in fact, there are reviewers that I, when I see their review, and I kind of know if I'm going to like that book or not, depending on what they say. Yeah. Thank you. I think now would be a great time to open it up to your questions. We'll prepare for, the, for you to diverge and pick up any of these threads or, or go with any of your own. I'll try to repeat the question, I guess, for the recording. Yes. Sure. Okay, so we have a two-part question. Freelance reviewer not having a, getting a chance to have a deep relationship with one editor. How does that create you know, self-monitoring challenges? And then also in the world of social media, you know, in which we are all friends with each other, uh, how does that affect the conflict? If you keep doing this, you will develop relationships with editors, plural. It's quite unusual in today's world of being paid badly for things for someone who's primarily a book reviewer to be exclusive to one journal. 
Uh, I think there's certain people who are on staff at the New York Times where that's the case. But that's quite unusual. So keep doing this, and uh, assuming that editors like your work, which I hope they do, you will develop these ongoing relationships. And then the editors will, I hope, ask you. Uh, and the more money involved, the more obligated they are, and the more likely, in my experience, they are to actually ask you, have you met this person? How well do you know this person? Have they written you a check? Now, if you do that for yourself because the editors are new to you and they're not doing it to you, you should ask yourself what they would be asking you. And the answers will be hard to come by, especially if you know people through various kinds of smaller universes than the larger universe of people who write about books. That could be you follow someone on Twitter. It could be, for example, that you're both knitters or amateur rocket hobbyists. It could be that you're both, uh, I'm going to use a made-up example, Martian Americans. Immutable characteristics, such as having four ears or being Martian American, I'm obviously using characteristics no one in fact has, pose particular problems of ethics for assigning editors. I'm getting this because we need to bring it up, and then we'll get back to your... But I, I think this is on point. If you have a book by a Martian American, you can assign it to someone else who's part of the Martian community. Or you can try and get outside that community. And the smaller the community of Martian Americans in literature is, the more likely that you're going to run into all sorts of conflicts. And I would say that you as a writer and your editors should err on the side of saying, no, let's have someone from within the community write about this, even if they tend to have lunch together, and let's get that perspective. Uh, and then maybe next time they'll make a different choice. But err, err on the side of permissiveness, of inclusiveness, of saying, yeah, you might know the person, but you also know the thing the book is about. Just quickly, I amen to Steve that there aren't rules, but there have to be conversations. Yeah. And when I assigned books, I sent a contract and an ethics sheet mm -hmm. so that everybody knew my mortal sins and to start the conversation. And if your editor hasn't asked you, you ask the editor. Where are your boundaries? What are you looking for? Tell me a horror story. Whatever you do, but start that conversation so you're not there alone. Yeah, I would really concur with that. And I'm shocked by how many reviewers for us say that they don't have, have this conversation with other editors. And I, I think I've started to tell them what, I, what I'm going to say now is challenge them to have it. I mean, it's, I think it's, I think they, if you're going to be a venue that publishes work, you need to take responsibility for these things. So, can, yeah. can I add two really quickly? So at this conference, I met someone who I know only through Facebook. We've communicated a little bit. And and I realized as we were talking that he really thinks that we're friends. And I, I didn't think the same thing. You know, I just thought, oh, here's someone I talk to on Facebook occasionally. It's just, it's, it's what it is. And, you know, that's the thing I think that's so trickly about online communities is, is there's sometimes relationships that aren't reciprocal or aren't fully reciprocal. And so I, I feel like I'd be very comfortable reviewing his work. I don't think he should be comfortable reviewing mine because he's already decided we're friends, even if that's largely illusory. Okay. You can tell Brian writes speculative fiction. <laughs> yes. So the question is, couldn't there be an attempt for a more universal code of ethics? I think I mean, I'd echo what Steve said earlier and that I think a universal code is nigh impossible, but I think a local codes should be developed and encouraged and transparent, you know, and put in public so that 
I mean, ours are posted on our website. So, and, and the more people are transparent about what they do locally, I think the, the ecosystem gets clearer and where different places might fall becomes clearer. But I'm not sure it would, you know, again, this is a great diagram because it shows how large this, you know, universe is. It, it just feels like it might be too unwieldy. We also haven't talked about the question of audience and they're really another factor yeah. in this. And, you know, uh, I mean, we create Rain Taxi for, you know, we have an audience in mind, it's you. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, we acknowledge that the New York Times has a different audience in mind. And so we, you know, we're going to write differently. You know, it's, it's great when different places review the same book because ideally they're going to do it differently and audience is one of the factors and maybe their local codes of, of understanding or of how they draw the relationship, where they draw the line, you know, if it's do you know your dog or are you friends on Facebook, those become more interesting, actually, when they differ. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. The question was, when you work for a publishing house, reviewing books by essentially similar publishing houses, would that be seen as... as Conflict. Yeah. No, actually, we consider that community because, uh, in, in a sense, we're, it's very much our intention to support the good work of other members of our community. But if, if I, for example, review a Fence book, I love Fence as a publication, you know, there's no blood or money exchange between us. I love that. I can't remember whether it was Carolyn or Stephen uh, said it was blood, sex... And money, I think, were the three. Yeah. Marriage, yeah. Marriage. Yeah. But marriage doesn't count as sex. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. darn. <laughs> it's more like your that sister-in-law. Uh, uh, ah, yeah. okay. Your sister-in-law is connected to you yeah. by marriage, but one. Got it, marriage. got it. Yeah. Thank you. That um, is a whole other panel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I really think that as long as there aren't those connections, that, that you're doing good work and you're supporting your colleague, but, you know, in another you know, in sort of the corporate world, we, it might be, well, you're supporting your competition, that's a mistake, but that's not how we think. We think in the opposite way. And Brian, could you chime in? Because uh, you said a fascinating thing in, in your first presentation, which was about uh, asking yourself as the reviewer whether you're reviewing a single text or whether you are advocating for something larger in the culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that one of the things I've done over time or tried to do over time is to, to um, you know, bring to attention a, a range of books that, that are opening spaces for a different kind of writing um, that could be available. I do that more as a translator. I translate stuff from French that I really feel is going to make American literature a more interesting place and will give young writers and, and older writers as well a kind of uh, a range of possibilities that they're just not seeing in the larger literary scene. And I do think that that, for me, is an important kind of advocacy. Um, but you have to do that kind of advocacy in a way that you don't forget about other things. Thank you. Yes. Omniverse. <laughs> Omnidon's um, literary mag. Yeah, the question was, what are other magazines that are open to emerging reviewers? I don't have a list handy. It's a great question. I'm suddenly inspired to try to create one, but certainly the burgeoning ecosystem, especially online, you know, creates a lot of opportunities. Ask yourself if you care about these ethical matters. 
you know, which are self-aggrandizing and which, you know, want to point the arrow outward. So, yeah, but any other, any strong recommendations from the panel? Query the editors of the journals that you are reading. Good advice. Yeah. Yes. So the question is, with online journals that may be uh, not going through a rigorous editorial process, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, I agree, uh, that's a huge problem, and I was kind of hinting at it earlier when, you know, I was saying try to choose journals that are essentially aiming to be more professional. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's that horrifying thing when you've suddenly seen something you've said in personal correspondence on someone's blog, and it's like, no, that's not what I'm doing. And, it's, and to me, it's even more horrifying if, if someone in good faith began what they hoped was a, a professional process, and s something grubby happened there, and something that wasn't caring about the person or the process. I mean, essentially, I think that is dishonorable. It's not ethical. And again, I, I don't know what we can do but to challenge the venues to behave more responsibly and also to select which ones to work with. You know, I would absolutely advise, for example, letting other students know this, this happened with this journal. You know, they're not going to be a good place to, to work with. And I think that's how things get filtered. But, you know, yeah. You're asking about the microclimate in a way of personal blogs and smaller presses that may be involved in the author, and if retribution for what you're doing in that personal realm is a possibility. Sure. Yeah. It seems to me if you've stated what you're doing and you're putting it out there, then you are comfortable with that. And if, <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. So the question is, does disclosure of a conflict mitigate the, the, the potential problem? Do you, want to sh do you have a short answer, Steve? Because it's our last question. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have a short answer, or no, it doesn't mitigate the problem? Yes. <laughs> there you have it. Thank you all for coming. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our wonderful panelists. Come see us at Rain Taxi, booth 701. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.